There is no text tonight. We're just going to look at, well, we're not going to turn to anything. It's just going to be a topical sermon on the paradoxes of the cross. What is a paradox? What is a paradox? I searched around. There's so many different definitions. I found one that I liked and I thought was so fitting. It says, a paradox is a statement, proposition, or situation that seems illogical, absurd, or self-contradictory, but which, upon further scrutiny, may be logical or true. Paradoxes often express ironies, an attempt to reconcile seemingly opposing ideas. So a paradox, it's two situations, two statements, two propositions that seem like they cannot go together. It seems like they are contradictory. Yet upon further examination, it's actually true. What's an example of a paradox in music or pop culture? We've all heard the the song from the Eagles, Hotel California, what's he say? You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Also, in another song, it says, if you want to reach me, then leave me alone. If you want to reach me, then leave me alone. It's just this idea that these, these, these two things, they sound like they're in opposition to each other, but they actually aren't contradictory. They actually make sense. Often paradoxes demonstrate the greatest truths because they are so deep when we put them together. What's an example of paradox from literature? Shakespeare often uses paradoxes and irony. In the book, uh, in the play Hamlet, Hamlet's uncle Claudius, he kills Hamlet's father and then he uh, usurps the throne from his father, and then he marries Hamlet's mother. Hamlet's mother doesn't know that Claudius did this. She doesn't know that Claudius killed her husband. And because Hamlet does know, and his mom doesn't know, there's a point in the story where Hamlet says, well, he decides he has to kill Claudius, and he says, I have to be cruel to be kind. I have to be cruel to be kind. The cross of Jesus is the richest example of paradox and irony that I've ever read, seen, anything. Not necessarily because of the individual statements, but because the entire story of Scripture tells us about what happened on the cross, about how all these conflicting ideas come to make sense in the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's some examples and things we have to deal with. How can a Messiah supposed to conquer? How can a conquering Messiah die? How can the omnipotent God, well, we'll get into this later, but God doesn't necessarily die, but how can an omnipotent God die a weak death? How can Jesus 
be under God's curse, yet blessed by God. When we look at the cross, well, there's other things. How can Jesus be mocked as the biggest joke by the Jews, yet also be king of the Jews? There's so many problems we have to uh, figure out when we come to the cross. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And, and scripture's understanding of Messiah, Messiah connotes kingship. It means to be king. What does a king do? Often when we think about a king, a king, they, they sit on a throne, they have people serve them, they go do whatever the king wants them to do. Kings are served, kings are powerful, kings are respected. Kings aren't mocked. Yet in the Gospels, Jesus is beaten and spit on. And instead of wearing a golden crown to make matters worse, they place a shameful crown of thorns on his head. This is supposed to be a symbol for royalty. And they turned it into an opportunity to shame him and mock him for claiming to be a king, the king. And they mock him even further. They put a sign above his head that says, King of the Jews, as he dies an agonizing, shameful death. How can that, how can Jesus be a king? How is that possible? Also, when you look at scripture, a Messiah is supposed to conquer. He's supposed to conquer God's enemies. Daniel 7, the Psalms, other places, they piece together a portrait of a man who was going to come and he was going to free Israel from their enemies. And what was going to happen after that? The Messiah is going to, he's going to take the throne in Israel and then Israel is going to rule the world under this Messiah. And so, Imagine being a Jew in the first century, you're under the Roman Empire, what do you think about the Messiah? The Messiah is going to come and defeat the Romans, right? He's going to conquer God's enemies. But in the Gospels, Jesus dies at the hands of the Romans. He dies at the hands of the ones he was supposed to defeat. The Messiah is also supposed to have God's favor. He's supposed to rule over Israel and the world under God. Yet on the cross, he's cursed by God. As he hangs on the cross, what do we read? Complete darkness comes over the land, which that represents God's curse all throughout the Old Testament. Every time darkness comes over the land, that's God's judgment. And not only that... In Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul understood that. That was difficult to understand because he quotes that in Galatians about Jesus. So the Messiah, he's supposed to be respected as a king. He's supposed to defeat God's enemies. And he's supposed to have God's blessing. Yet when we go to the Gospels, we don't exactly see that. 
mocked, dying to the ones he's supposed to defeat under God's curse. To the Jewish people, if Jesus was the Messiah, then that's a contradiction of the Old Testament. But what if it's just a paradox? What if God was about to turn everything the Jews and the Romans thought about and did to Jesus on its head? What if they were mocking Jesus as a king because they simply didn't understand? We talked about the purple robe, we talked about the spitting, we talked about, and we could talk about other things, but I want to focus for a second on the crown of thorns. What was the crown of thorns? What did the crown of thorns symbolize? Well, in Genesis 3, we all know that that is about the fall of the world, the curse of the world. In verse 18, Genesis 3, listen to what it says. He, God curses humanity in the earth, and he says that now it's going to bear thorns and thistles. It's going to bear thorns and thistles. And so now this crown of thorns, which symbolizes the entire curse of the world, the curse of creation, is being placed on Jesus' head. The symbolism is rich because what's actually happening is Jesus is taking the curse of creation with him to the grave. And on Sunday, when he rises from the dead, he will usher in and launch the new creation, which starts with the renewal of his people. The Romans meant for the crown of thorns to mock Jesus, but God turns it on his head for Jesus' glory. What about the belief that the Messiah was supposed to conquer the Romans, though? If the Jews would have paid closer attention to Scripture, they would have clearly seen that the real problem was never the Romans. It was always the demonic forces behind these kingdoms. It was the demonic forces behind Rome. If they would have fit, if they would have thought, taken all, you know, they go to Daniel 7, they go to Psalm 2, they go to all these places about a Messiah. If they would have fit in Isaiah 52 and 53 about a suffering servant into their equation of a Messiah, then they would have seen that Jesus being pierced for our transgressions is exactly what the Messiah is supposed to do. It's a paradox because he's supposed to defeat God's enemies and he's dying to the Romans, but what they don't see is that in order for Jesus to defeat our greatest enemy, which is Satan, sin, and death, he has to surrender his life. What if the sign that's above Jesus' head on the cross, King of the Jews, wasn't actually about Pilate mocking Jesus? What if it's actually God's commentary to the world saying, this is what the love of a true king looks like? What about Jesus being cursed by God? How does that fit in with the belief of a Messiah? You and I are both sinners. We're all sinners. And because of that, we deserve to be cursed. We deserve the cup of God's wrath. We deserve the, the darkness over the land. 
We deserve the abandonment. We deserve to die. What's happening then on the cross is what Scripture talks about as the great exchange. It's the substitution of Jesus taking our place on the cross, which is the heart of the gospel. And that was the plan all along. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. They may not have realized, the Jews may not have realized, they may have, may have rightly realized that Jesus was under God's curse. They rightly understood that. But what they didn't realize that it was precisely through Jesus' obe- Jesus's obedience unto death, which led him to being exalted as king and lord of the world. Every king that we read about extends his kingdom through killing. Jesus inaugurates and extends his kingdom through dying. Jesus was mocked. He died. He took on God's curse. And he did all this so that all the seemingly disparate strands of Scripture, and it did this to give us a complete picture, portrait of what a true king actually looks like. Could it be that what's happening on the cross is what Isaiah said would happen all along, that they not, they're not going to realize that they're killing him. They're not going to realize that they're killing the Messiah. And is Jesus not echoing Isaiah when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. The cross is the ultimate paradox. It's the place where we see the disciples scatter, yet it's also the place where disciples are reconciled. The cross is where we see perfect love and justice meet. It's the place where death leads to life, where good puts an end to evil, where love conquers hate, where defeat is actually victory, where conquering happens through suffering. The cross is the place where Jesus is at once abandoned by the Father, but it's also the way for us to go to the Father. The cross is the place where Jesus is mocked, but it's also the place that we now most adore him. It's the place where wrath creates peace, where condemnation leads to justification, where misery leads to joy, death leads to life. Temporary suffering leads to eternal life. It's where the light of the world was slain by darkness. It's where our Lord became servant. The cross is where Jesus was weak, but at the same time, omnipotent. It's the place where the crown of thorns demonstrates that he's worthy to wear the eternal crown. It's where the worst thing that has ever happened in history was also the greatest thing that has ever happened in history. It's the place where a dark, ugly, evil Friday is actually Good Friday. If you're not a Christian and you're here, 
or watching from home, how does this relate to you? I want you this evening to consider a king who is unlike any king you've ever heard about. He's merciful, he's compassionate, he's willing to die in your place so that you don't have to suffer eternally and abandoned by God. That's the heart of what is happening on the cross. Jesus being punished for sinners so that they can be forgiven. Repent and believe the gospel. The cross is the greatest paradox in human history. When we reflect on the cross this Good Friday, we see, that, we see that everything that seemed to be against Jesus for his shame was actually flipped on its head by God for his glory. But nobody's going to find that out until Sunday. Tonight, it's Friday. Jesus has taken his last breath and he's going to the grave and the Romans and the Jews see him as nothing more than a joke and the disciples wonder, is he the one? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your suffering on our behalf. Thank you for helping us see how all of the things that seem to be against a king or go against a king or go against a Messiah is actually extremely glorious, infinitely glorious. Lord, we're amazed at how so many things that seem to contradict come together to create a perfect and beautiful portrait of a king. We thank you, we pray that we would, that you would be utmost in our hearts and in our affections. We pray that our hearts are broken over what you have done in our place. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.